Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Should we translate our code of conduct? While this might seem to be a rather straightforward question, it has some surprising nuances that I've run into with a few clients in the past that I think it's worth having a short discussion about, particularly if you're revising or planning to revise your code of conduct. It's a perfect time to consider the translations that you currently have of the code of conduct or what translations you might want to endeavor to do in the future. First, let's talk a little bit about your current translation process. If you're an organization that uh, pretty frequently translates English documents into other languages, you probably have a translation partner you work with very frequently. When you're talking about translating your code of conduct, that's a little bit different endeavor, and let me explain what I mean. For most organizations these days, the code of conduct is not just a collection of your policies and procedures, your values, and some other statements. It's a laid out design document that has learning aids and other visual elements that typically, if you're just translating business documents, perhaps your translation partner doesn't have experience doing that sort of translation that includes layout and design. This is particularly true if you're translating into Chinese, Arabic, Hebrew, or other languages where the actual layout of the text within a document that has layout and design is going to be vastly different in some cases from the English version. So while I'm sure that you have a tremendous amount of confidence in your translation partner, if you have one that you work with frequently, take a moment to consider their experience in translating not only the text of a document, but the layout and design, because that's an important element of any modern code of conduct. About a year and a half ago, when the New York Stock Exchange and Society for Corporate Compliance and Ethics, SECE, conducted their survey, their joint survey, one of the questions they asked was, do you translate your code of conduct? And they asked it in two iterations. First, they asked all organizations. And of the entire group of organizations that were surveyed for that survey, only 37% said they translated it. Now, there are many of those organizations that are based in North America, although uh, we'll come back to whether that means translation or not in a minute. So that wasn't too surprising. One of the other questions they asked was, do you translate your code when your organization has operations in more than one country? So not surprisingly, I suspect, in that case, the paradigm was flipped completely and 73% of organizations said yes. But still, you have to wonder about the 27% who said no. So while at the top of this conversation I said it may seem obvious that you translate your document, there's at least uh, 27% of organizations that are operating in more than one country that are not translating their code of conduct, the foundation of their compliance program. So part of the answering of the question was as to whether you should be translating your code of conduct is questioning what the requirements are. So part of the equation is looking at the guidance that we've seen from the United States Sentencing Commission and the guidelines, the Department of Justice, SEC, and other regulators over time. And what they consistently talk about when they talk about code of conduct is that it remain current and effective and that it reach the audiences that it's intended to reach, your stakeholders and your employees. 
Well, if it's not in a language that your employees and other stakeholders can understand, I don't see how it can conceivably be effective. So that should be the threshold question. Is the document that we have and the current translations that we have, is that effective? Are we reaching the employees and the stakeholders that we're trying to reach? Now, does that mean that you translate the code into every language in every country in which you have some sort of operations? Not necessarily. Let me give you a couple of concrete examples from clients that I've seen in the past. I've had many clients over the years that have a population of employees in a country like Sweden. And if your employees in Sweden are white collar employees, more likely than not, their English proficiency is very high. And I have worked with several clients who have determined that they didn't need to translate into Swedish because the population that they had in their Swedish operations, they were very comfortable, overwhelmingly had high English proficiency. Now, you can't make the assumption just because you have operations in Sweden that there's high English proficiency. I had another client recently that had a manufacturing facility in a smaller town in Sweden. And they were not at all convinced after talking to local human resources and local administrators in Sweden that they could provide an English text code and have assurance that those employees were able to understand it. And they actually made the determination to go ahead and translate the code document into Swedish for that very reason. So you can't make blanket statements just because of the location. You really have to drill down and take a look at your employee population and your stakeholder population to make the determination as to whether a translation into the local language makes sense. Another factor in your calculation should be population size. I've seen this several times. If there is a limited amount of resource for translating a code and a code design and layout, and you have 10,000 employees around the world, and in one location you have 30 employees that speak Portuguese, but, but they're the only 30 that speak that language in the entire company, it may mean that you don't expend the expense and effort to translate the document, particularly if, say, those 30 were, like we said in the last example, uh, white-collar employees, uh, many white-collar professional employees in, in Brazil, for example, speak English, uh, conversational English, very well. So it's population size, looking at the makeup of that population, that will help you determine how important and how mission critical it would be for a translation in that language. Now, earlier when I mentioned the data from the SCCE NYSE survey, I noted that it seemed rather small that only 37% of all the organizations in the sample translated. And I believe that's probably true because the North American organizations in that sample heavily weighed it. But I would like to make a case for those of us that have operations here in North America that do not currently translate our code of conduct into another language, that perhaps that's a decision that you might want to revisit. Let me give you another statistic. 55 million. 55 million Americans or American residents speak a language other than English in their home. That's from the U.S. Census. And 24.2 million Americans or American residents self-report that they do not speak English well. That's a pretty high percentage. 
I think it behooves us as organizations, even if we're working completely in North America, to again, peer down into the organization and look at our employee population and our other stakeholders. And by other stakeholders, maybe those are subcontractors who are supposed to be abiding by the terms in our code of conduct. Well, do you know what the population of your subcontractors and your other third parties who you've asked to be bound to your code of conduct, do you know what their population looks like? Are you comfortable, even if they're entirely comprised of people living in North America, that they speak English proficiently, that they speak English well enough to understand your code of conduct? I think uh, it's a, a topic that's really worth examining. And while we're on the topic of translations, I would like to make a pitch for clear English language as well. If you do a Flesh Kincaid grade level check on your code of conduct language or otherwise review the code of conduct language and find that there's complex sentences, legalese, that the grade level is above grade level 9 or 10, then you have to expect that any translation is going to only be further complicated. You have to start with a clear, concise, and well-written English document to have any hopes of having a translated code of conduct document that makes sense in the other language. In fact, I would say step one to determining how your code of conduct needs to be translated into other languages is to review the English language version of your code and determine whether you're happy or satisfied that that code, that language, will reach your employees and other stakeholders in an efficient and clear way. And if it doesn't, I think job one is cleaning up the English. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this week is, when it comes to translations, there may be more than meets the eye. It's important to consider translations even if you are a purely domestic entity. The key here, whether you're operating globally or just here in North America, is to look closely at your employee population and your stakeholder population to determine what languages are necessary. And lastly, don't forget to take a close look at your English version. If your English is too complicated, then your translations will be too complicated. Today, we have three questions with Ronnie Feldman. Ronnie is the president and creative director of Learnings and Entertainments, a creative service and content provider that focuses on improving employee engagement through the power of fun. Ronnie has an MBA in entrepreneurial management and an improv comedy background and spent the better part of the past 25 years playing in the entertainment and learning space. Ronnie believes that the philosophies of improvisation can help make you a better person that the Chicago Cubs will win a World Series, and that napping should be an Olympic sport. He takes great pride in finding creative ways to solve business problems through the use of humor, improvisation, and fun. Many of you may know Ronnie as the mind behind Real Biz Video Shorts that were launched by Second City. Ronnie left Second City this past year to launch L&E, and we're excited to learn more about his new creative venture and what he's been up to. Welcome, Ronnie. Well, hello there. Can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Thanks. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on uh, on this podcast. That's uh, a fun, new, and interesting experience. I was a typical MBA with an entrepreneurial bent, but no real idea what that meant. So I spent the first 10 years of my career doing strategic planning, business planning for hospitals and physician providers in the healthcare field, 
working for a boutique consulting firm, having some success, and as happens to many people maybe in their 20s, uh, experience some disillusionment. But I happened to take an improv class with the Second City, and I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but it kind of changed everything for me. The creativity, the camaraderie with this group of creative people, the freedom to fail and try new things, the yes and philosophy, pure fun and joy, and it was really inspiring to me, and it, it, it affected me in profound ways. So I quit my job at the age of 30 and spent the better part of the next 10 years in a sketch comedy and improv troupe writing and performing for a living. Many of the folks from that troupe and that community are now in television and film and in different phases of their acting and comedy careers. Obviously, they had much more talent than I did. But at the uh, age of 40, when I realized that SNL wasn't calling my name, I combined my previous background with what I had been doing as a writer, performer, and producer, and started working with The Second City. And I, I, got, I was really lucky. I got to them at a really transformational time. Uh, they had a B2B division that was mostly doing corporate entertainment, but had the idea of shifting more into the corporate learning space and had started that process. So as luck would have it, I ended up working with the president of that division, and we ended up building and launching what became known as Real Biz Short, which, for those of you who aren't familiar, was using humor as a way to socialize learning, and we would make these short narrative videos that highlighted problems in the governance, risk, and compliance space. So that's what brought me to the to the community. So uh, we had gosh, we had a lot of fun. I mean, in, in every sense, in the improv sense, we built something out of nothing. And by the time I left, some seven years later, we had gotten to be about thirty percent of the Fortune one thousand. So we built a nice little business. But jump ahead seven years, we had a, a fire where my office burned down. Uh, we had a leadership change, and you find yourself in this reflective period and. I started thinking about the fact that I was an executive now and not doing any of the work that made me fall in love with the art form in the first place. I wanted to write and produce lots of fun, interesting content. I love improvisation and I want to be an evangelist for improvisational thinking and its benefits in the workplace. I want the, 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 wanted the flexibility to pursue fun, creative ideas as they come up. Long story longer. I left and launched Learnings Entertainment at the beginning of this year, which is really a, a culmination of all these fun, weird, interesting experiences. In short, what, it, what we're trying to do is really focusing on employee engagement through the power of funds or different kinds of ways to use fun as a way to influence behavior. And uh, we're, we're playing around with a lot of fun ideas. We're, we're using a lot of music and song to convey information because I think that that's going to be re a really interesting addition to the space and allows you to reach people in different ways. We're going to be using a lot of multimedia content, a lot of short, quick, light, top ten lists and gifts and memes and other advertising type things because we don't see a lot of that in the space. We think it's really fun and interesting and we hope it can benefit the communities. Coming to improvisation and coming to this notion of using fun to communicate, it was definitely a journey. Uh, if you could go back and talk to your younger self before you started working both at Second City and now at Learnings and Entertainments, if you had one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? I really consider myself in the entertainment and engagement space, and I've really enjoyed uh, finding different ways to use that to benefit the compliance community. So I'm going to answer your question in a, in a little bit of a roundabout way because, I, you know, I'm not on the ground floor like many of your audiences really working with companies to set policies and mitigate risk and, and do all those things. I would say for those 
who are entering the space. In my opinion, the, the best way to mitigate risk is to focus on the human need, not the policy or, or as legal would say it. I think the most effective way to mitigate risk is to actively focus on culture building and influencing others so that the group can collectively police itself, for about lack of a better word. And I, this is something I'm really passionate about. I, I, I hate it when I hear that people say, well, this is not part of our culture. And I think that makes it sound like culture is this passive thing that we have to accept or that we're we're a part of but not influencing. And I don't think that's correct. I actually think that particularly in the ethics compliance space and and as a leader in general, you are actively influencing culture every day whether you need it or not. So back to your question, the, uh, the advice is the best way to actively influence culture is to be positive, supportive and approachable, to be a good listener, since you're an authority figure, to try and avoid the finger wag in, a, in, in any way that you can, and to take every opportunity where you're interacting with your audience, with your employees, to, to communicate in fun, interesting, and empathetic ways. And that can be one-on-one conversations, but also how you construct your emails, how you deliver your training, how you word your policies, the things that you put on your intranet site. I, I think everything that you do is an advertisement and a calling card for how people should ex- perceive this information. So if you want people to listen to you and to, to listen to these very important things, I think it's really important to do this in ways that don't make fun of the issues, but to do this in a really human way, in an empathetic way. And people crave fun and interesting, and they crave variety. So last but not least, I would say, you know, you take the work seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Try new things and have fun, and I think that will benefit you and the organization in many ways. And lastly, Ronnie, if you could peer into your ethics and compliance crystal ball, what one or two trends do you see on the horizon that are going to be important over the next few years? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. There's so many different ways to go with this. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of technological breakthroughs. You know, with the, there's in the training space, there's this 3D that, that's coming uh, along. There's going to be a, lots of other interactive gaming technologies. But to me, I think that the most important thing is going to be ease of access to information or real-time access to information, removing the barriers that allow people to get the help that they need and the information that they need. So there is a technology aspect to that. So the things that we're trying to do at L&E to impact the ease of access of information is to focus on the simplification of materials, the variety of stimulus, and finding new touch points. We are literally creating advertisements for compliance with the employee in mind. You know, the, the, the idea is to make the concepts simple and rememberable. Is that a word, rememberable? We're going to say that it is. <laughs> we're going to make it memorable. Uh, so we're creating music. Think about uh, hold music or the waiting room before a webinar or something that plays when you come to your internet site. We, we think that this is an untapped space, so having fun, catchy songs and jingles is a way to make information more accessible. We're, we're playing around with you know, these gifts and memes. We're playing around with animation. We think that by taking this advertising mindset, things that are already working for advertising can be applied in the communication and training space in the same ways. So 
you can reach people in short, interesting, bite-sized ways. It doesn't feel like you're preaching at them. It feels like you're holding out a shingle to say, hey, we're here. We're here to help. We, we need your help to make this a better place. We, 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 we're all on the same team. To bring it back to your question, ease of access to information is really important, and we see that being having a, a big effect on the future. Well, Ronnie, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and answering our three questions. You are welcome. Everybody have fun today. As Ronnie mentioned in his interview, his team has put a different take on some compliance materials, including using music. Here's a short example of some of the work Ronnie's team at Learnings and Entertainment have done. So if you ever seen something that you know is not fine It may just happen on occasion, maybe not all of the time If this guy is fudging numbers and pocketing dimes Drop an anonymous note on the helpline It can sometimes be confusing, there's right and wrong and gray But the code of conduct will help you find the way Speaking up is confidential, that's handy dandy swell You can ask us, you can tell us, do ask, do tell You know you gotta speak up Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.